If you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, um, verses 18 through 27, and turn, it's on page 848. If you have, I know you don't have a pew Bible, but if you have a pew Bible, the same pages as that, page 848, if you could stand uh, for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. And the Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked Jesus a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that a man's brother dies and leaves a wife and leaves no children. The man must take a widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers, and first took a wife, then he died and left no offspring, and the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise, and the seven brothers left no offspring. Last of all, the women also died. Verse 23 of chapter 12 of Mark. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For she had seven as her husband. Jesus said to them, it is not the reason that you were wrong, because you neither, uh, know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they're neither married nor given in marriage, but they're like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses and the passage about the bush? God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. The word of the Lord. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you and we need you. We need you to guide our hearts and guide our minds by the proclamation of your word. May your spirit guide us and teach us and convict us. May the spirit make us more like Jesus as you bring forth the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and gentleness, and self-control, Christ-likeness. Father, we need you. In a world of shifting sand, in a world of competing voices, in a world of animosity and anger and angst, in a world that trusts governments and health care and money and security and power and wealth and fame, we trust in the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. But how quickly we wander. How quickly we doubt. How quickly we forget. And Father, you are a God who is gracious and compassionate. You Pursue your sheep, and you carry us back to the safety of the sheepfold where you have left the 99. Father, I pray right now for our sister Linda, as she is suffering through the stages of cancer, Lord, she needs you. She needs your strength, she needs your healing touch, but most of all, she needs the hope of the resurrection. Strengthen her. Strengthen Bob as he cares for her, as he loves her, as he enjoys the time with his wife. Father, I pray for Virgil. For Virgil as he suffers through the um, difficulties and the ruthlessness of a brain tumor. Lord, time and time again since his diagnosis, he has 
rejoiced in the work of Christ, who has saved his soul. And there is not heaven, there is nothing in heaven and earth that can separate Virgil from the love of God. Remind him as he fights this tumor. And I pray for Eleanor as she loves her husband, that you encourage her and strengthen her and provide her what she needs when she needs it in the amount that she needs. Father, I pray for each and every one of us today as we need you for the personal challenges that we have uh, living in a fallen world as we try to faithfully love and raise our children, as we care for our parents, as we uh, love our neighbor, as we work, as we provide, as our nation battles a silent pandemic that we cannot see but we know is there. Father, we thank you. Now, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And there is no enemy, even death itself, that can void the promises of God on your word. We will abide and we wait and trust your promises. In the name that is above all name, Jesus Christ, we pray. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you've closed your Bibles, go ahead and open back up to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, we are continuing uh, there in the three tests that Jesus has gone. But let me ask you as we begin to open up, what do you think of when you think of the afterlife? There are many answers in this world that are given, and from anything from nirvana to paradise of different levels based on your worthiness in this life. There is a celestial kingdom that you will, uh, some say, will inhabit and, and populate. There are many that even believe in reincarnation, that you will either go up and down depending on your carnation, and then eventually you'll become one with God. And there are many cynical, skeptical people that says there is no laughter life, the only afterlife you have is being food for the worms. They're also really good at writing uh, Hallmark cards, those folks. What do you think of when you think of the afterlife? And what is the basis that you think about it? Is it um, things that you see on television or books that you read or uh, things that pop up in social media? Is it your personal preference, things you like to do now, you're going to do in the end when the time comes? This is the test that uh, Jesus comes across is the Sadducees come and they try to trap Jesus. And they know that the afterlife is rather controversial at this time because the Sadducees, unlike the Pharisees, did not believe in the afterlife. They believed you're one and done. And so they come to Jesus knowing that Jesus teaches of the resurrection like the Pharisees did. And they want to, as we see already in verse 13, to trap him in his words to get him to stumble up and to prove that this uneducated rabbi from the backwoods of Israel and Galilee was uneducated. He was not credentialed by the ruling people and he was not worthy and he was only causing trouble to the religious establishment. He was challenging them and by doing so he was challenging their income and they wanted to expose Jesus for the fraud they believed he was. 
Jesus, the first test, when the Pharisees came, they said, uh, who should we pay taxes? Should we pay taxes? And Jesus stymied the Pharisees when he said, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar and give to God the things that are God. And the Pharisees had nothing to say. They had brought out their 95 mile per hour fastball and Jesus had hit it into the cheap seats. Now the Pharisees took their stab at it and they wanted to trip Jesus up. And though we don't know much about the Pharisees, little has been preserved from their, none, nothing has been preserved from their own writing. The only thing we know about the Pharisees is from their opponent's writing. But they were wealthy, they were aristocrats, they were uh, families of the high priest, they were influential. And here in verse 18, Mark tells us that they denied the resurrection. And even in the book of Acts, Luke tells us they didn't even believe in angels. And so they were very cynical, they were brash, and they were coming for Jesus. They believed that when the body died, the soul died. There was no afterlife, there was no eternal punishment, there was no eternal reward. This was all there was, and death had the final word. This morning, as Mark brings us and is moving us towards the uh, resurrection, he tells us this, the living God who created life, the living God who created life will resurrect his people to eternal life. The living God who created life will his, resurrect his people to eternal life. Now, the Sadducees come to Jesus in verses 18 through 23, and they bring an absolutely ridiculous, absurd scenario to Jesus that um, they knew, because they had probably used it on the Pharisees before, they knew Jesus would not be able to answer this. And they just waited with contempt as they pictured Jesus stumbling over his words, not ready for the question. And so they asked them this carefully crafted question in verse 19. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that in Moses, they, they only believed in the first five books of the Bible, by the way, the Pentateuch, it's called. And they only believed in that. They didn't believe in the rest of it. They said, Moses, all high and mighty, saluting, quoting Moses, wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no children, the man must take the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. Now, us 21st century people might be a little squirmish and this is odd and this is kind of strange and you're thinking of your sister-in-law or your brother-in-law and you're like, no, bro, I'm glad I live in the 21st century. But it's, this is what, in the Old Testament, it's called Leverite marriage. In the Old Testament, preserving a family's lineage and their property and the name of a family was of utmost importance. If a married man died and he had no heir, no children, no offspring, the dead man's brother would marry his widow and they would, from their union, the firstborn would be actually considered the child of the dead man. And that way, that heir would not only continue the name, but receive the property, and the widow would not live a life of destitution and poverty without a husband and without a child. So this is God's way of preserving this name. And it's strange to 21st century ears, but Leverite marriage preserved the, the property and the family and the widow. 
And so in verse 20, the Sadducees come to Jesus and they said, there were seven brothers. And the first took a wife and the third, and they eventually seven brothers marry this woman and all of them die without a child. By the third, fourth husband, you'd start asking questions, but this is a ridiculous scenario, a ridiculous question that they had. And uh, you can almost hear the snarkiness in their question when they get to the end of verse 23. Whose wife will she be? Seven have had her as his wife. What this woman can't be in the resurrection, they probably did air quotes back then, in the resurrection, you can't be the wife of seven men. This is ridiculous. Imagine the chaos in heaven trying to figure this out. The Sadducees knew that anybody who attempted to answer one of these questions would stumble into a lose-lose scenario. Sometimes you have some um, smart aleck uh, cynic who says, can God make a rock so big that he can't lift it? Knowing that either way you answer, it's a trap. The Sadducees' questions was cynical and arrogant, but the teaching authority of Jesus was not fooled. Notice verse 24. Jesus says to them, is not the reason that you are wrong because you know neither of the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus answers them, the families of the high priest who have been raised in the teaching of the law, he answers them and says, you don't know what you're talking about. It's like somebody who would go to a Wall Street trader and said, listen, you don't know anything about finances. Or going to a farmer and saying, you don't know anything about nature. The problem with this silly argument about marriage was a faulty understanding of Scripture that produces a faulty understanding of the nature and the character of God. The problem with the Sadducees is that their God was too small. Because they had a serious heart issue. Ocean Park, oftentimes we think about the resurrection based on folklore and fairy tales, personal interests in skepticism, not how God has revealed himself in, in scripture or what God is doing in redemption. But Jesus in his answers provides us with two truths. Two truths that I want you to see today and I believe these truths will carry us. One, the purpose of eternal life is communion with God. The purpose with eternal life is communion with God. And the second thing is the promise of eternal life is not broken by death. The promise of eternal life is not broken by death. Now, I want to warn you, I have read, I got a late notice that I'd be preaching today, uh, but I, I read a lot, and there's a lot of questions that come up. Um, through this text, but I want to be able to, and I've read a lot of sermons and I was like, holy cow, this is not, this is, we're talking about all this stuff. The, we want to be able to see what Mark is leading us to in the scope of, of what Mark is writing. Chapter 16, we're head there, and it's not the crucifixion, it's the resurrection. 
the resurrection that reveals who Christ is and what he has done and affirms he is who he said he is and he did what he said he would do. So we need to see the resurrection is a really big deal. And this is what the Sadducees challenged Jesus. And this is what Jesus took a 3-2 fastball and hit it uh, 500 feet over the center field fence because of the authority and the, and the wit of Jesus and his power. One, the purpose of eternal life is communion with God. And two, that purpose of eternal life is not broken by death. We often incorrectly assume that resurrection life, a.k.a. eternal life, is simply the continuation of our earthly life minus the struggles and the pains and the limitations that hamper us on this side of eternity. If this were the case, the Sadducees were not all that off base in pointing out the problem of marriage in the resurrection. But Jesus qualifies, and in, in, in verse 25 says, For when they ri- rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Now right there, that, that verse, some of you have quizzical looks, and some of you thought, will I not be married in heaven? What's going, will this be in heaven? Will that be in heaven? We can talk about that later. Don't get distracted. Focus, grasshoppers. Eternal life, Jesus is teaching us, is a transformed dimension of life that is, um, that is presently unseen by human eyes. It's a transformed dimension of life that's unseen by human eyes. Notice, as Jesus, at the end of verse 25, like the angels in heaven, eternal life is neither an unending passions and pleasures, like I'm going to fish in heaven 24 hours a day. Some of you, I've been to funerals that said, Jim Bob or whatever, he's fishing, he's going to fish in heaven forever. I believe in the new heaven and new earth, there's going to be fishing, I think it is. I'm not going to die on that hill, but I believe so. In heaven, there's going to be eating and drinking and quilting and golfing and rocking on a rocking chair while you sip sweet tea and listen to country music. It's, heaven is not just an unending uh, series of our pleasures and passions and the things that we liked here. Though, there will be pleasures and passions and it will be wonderful in the new heavens and new earth. Second, heaven is, uh, eternal life is neither an extension of earthly conditions yet more glorious. Like marriage. Marriage will not be in heaven. Again, we can get distracted with that. But resurrection life, resurrection living, is transformed living. It's a dimension of life which is presently imperceptible to human eyes. In our understanding, we don't really fully understand the glories of what is yet to come. Paul begins to explain this. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown imperishable, what will happen? Will be raised, I'm so sown perishable, will be raised imperishable. What is sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. It is, what is sown in natural body will be raised in a spiritual body. Eternal life will not be business as usual, but it will be a complete metamorphosis, like a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. 
perishable to imperishable, dishonor to glory, weakness to power, natural to spiritual. The glorious realities of eternal life is this, communion with God. John Piper in his book, um, God is the Glory, writes a story. If you went to heaven and you saw your grandmother and you had a glorified body and you walked the streets of gold and you could sing and he was this intricate thing, would it be heaven if Jesus wasn't there? Would it? The answer is no. Though there's a lot of great things that are going to be about heaven. The glory of heaven is communion with the living God. Let me give you an example to try to, to get, get you in, the, those, uh, in that thinking. We can see this little baby. Baby, oh, where, I think it was just, it, it went down the birth canal. It was just breathing. Oh, there he goes. Okay, it's back. It's back. Um, this, eh, all right, I think it's got a timer on it and it goes away. Okay, we got it. We got the baby. Everything's okay. In the womb, this child is warm. It's happy. Um, it has a tube into its belly, and it feeds it. It's, it's wonderful, and it's, it snuggles 24 hours and sleeps and is fed. What's, that's a wonderful life. Imagine two twin babies in the womb asking one another, do you believe in life after the womb? And the other one says, I can't prove it. I can't see it. This child in the womb is completely surrounded by the love of the mother and the life of the mother, though the child cannot see her. Labor for this child seems harsh and cold and bright and, and um, just devastating, but it's not without labor that this child can be embraced by the warm arms of its mother to hear her beautiful voice to feel her sweet kiss same way as christians there is continuation of life now versus life in glory there is greater uh, change in our life when we are totally surrounded by god now who sustains our life but he remains unseen to us when death comes to each of us it may be a shock and it feels cold and harsh and cruel but death is the means that bring us to experience the resurrection life that, and where we will see God who gives us life. He's the one who has nourished us. He is the one who ra will raise us to life again. And it will be absolutely glorious and mind-blowing to us. Like a child cannot understand, a child in the womb cannot imagine what the beach is like at sunset or what a, um, a Beethoven concerto is like because life in the womb doesn't give him or her the categories. Eternal life, we don't have the categories of how glorious it would be, but we know it is a transformed life that is, is designed for communion with God. Anthony Homica, he, I don't think I said that, he's a, a Dutch theologian who, um, I don't have it. Now, let me read it to you. It's impossible for us in our present state of being, in our present bodies, weak and perishable as they are, to inherit the full blessings of the life to come. There must be a change. 
Eternal life is not merely a resuscitation, but it's a complete transformation. There will be a continuation, but there's a greater transformation that allows us to come in fellowship and communion with our God. Ocean Park, I want you to know this. In heaven, you will be united with your loved ones who have died in Christ, who have been taken away from you by the cruel grip of, of death. In heaven, you will walk and leap and dance. I know we're Baptists, but you will dance in heaven and it will be great. You will have a body that is free from the crippling effects of sin. You will see colors and hear sounds and taste flavors that in this life you couldn't even imagine. As Paul tells us, what no eye has seen. Well, that's not it. Take my word for it. What Paul says, what no eye has seen, nor ear had heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who loved him. The promise of eternal life is the promise of communion with God. A day is coming when the curtain is drawn back the curtain that separates the, the presence of God in our midst that we cannot perceive and understand, that curtain will be drawn back and we will have glorified bodies and spiritual minds to be able to perceive and see God and the fullness of His glory and the beauty and the grandeur of our God. And we will have fullness of joy and pleasure, as First John writes, and um, that your, my joy may be complete, that you may know God. We will know God and it will be glorious. The eternal life is designed for communion with God. The God... <clears throat> Bring up my big idea, Chris, if you could. The living God who created life will resurrect his people to eternal life. Because the purpose of eternal life is communion with God and the eternal life and the promise of eternal life is not broken by sin. I mean, excuse, the promise of eternal life is not broken by death. It's one of those days. All right, there we go. Jesus continues in his interaction with the Sadducees, emphasizing that eternal life is a foundational element of the work of God. And to deny eternal life is to deny the transformational work that God is doing in his creation. However, if we say that eternal life is designed with communion with God, there's a problem. Death separates us from the ones we love, and death puts an end to our work and to our life. Death, it would seem, uh, seems to render the promises of God null and void. Or does it? Does death uh, negate the promises? Jesus says no. Take heart, brothers and sisters, who have tasted the bitterness, bitterness of death and been separated from your loved ones. The promise of the gospel is that death does not have the final word. For the power and the promises of God are greater than death. Notice verse 26. Jesus says, as for the dead being raised, have you not read? In the I apologize. I'm on fire. And 
As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses as the passage about the bush, the burning bush that Steve read, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of, uh, of the dead, but the God of the living. You are quite wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. Jesus continues this, this dismantling the Sadducees' preposterous scenario because they don't know what they talk about and they simply do not know the God they claim to serve. Jesus is bringing them the story of the burning bush where God tells Moses and he instructs the people to, to lead Moses to lead these slaves out of, a, of the of bondage of Egypt, the, the superpower at the time, and it's a tall order to slaves. And God commands Moses uh, uh, to be able to do this and bring them to a land that is flowing with milk and honey. But Moses doesn't know what to tell the people. What shall I say or who shall I say promised such a thing? And God answers, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Why does this matter? Why does Jesus bring this up? Why does Jesus cite a promise in Israel's distinct past from the patriarchs who have, are long dead and gone? Because God, God made a promise to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob, a promise that is not negated by death. If God could save Abraham and Isaac and Jacob from their greatest enemy, death, his promise, if God could not save Abraham and his Isaac and Jacob from their greatest enemy, which is death, God can't save us and his promises are worthless. God doesn't say, listen, Moses, I was their God. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Why? Because physical de death does not the, negate the promises of God, and physical death does not uh, mean the spiritual death. The promises of God are still living and active because Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are still alive. Yes, the scripture says that they all tasted death. Yes, scripture says that their bodies were buried. However, scripture reassures us that the physical death is not the end of our existence. Alistair Begg put it this way. There have been gathered in the presence of God, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, awaiting that glorious resurrection day when all the myriads, hosts upon hosts, they will be gathered in the grand finale. When all of this comes down from heaven, like a bride adorned for her husband, and the dwelling of God is with men, and a new heaven and a new earth. The Sadducees didn't get it. Their God was too small. They believed that death was the end of everything. The end of life, the end of joy, the end of existence, the end of God's promises. But death is not uh, the end. The promise of the living God is that those who have experienced physical death are still alive. One of the writings based, I believe it's based on, um, the, the, it's from the Valley of Vision, based on uh, Puritan prayers, it says, it is not death to die. It's a song. To leave this weary road and join the saints who dwell on high, who found their home with God. It is not death to close the eyes long dimmered by tears and wake in joy before their throne, delivered from our fears. 
Oh, Jesus conquering the grave, your precious blood has power to save. Those who trust in you will in your mercy find it is not death to die. Ocean Park, just like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob live today, awaiting the resurrection of the dead, where their bodies will rise from the dead and be transformed into infinite bodies to dwell and enjoy the fullness of God's glory. All the people of God who have died in faith and their bodies have been buried in the ground will rise again. But how? Because Jesus is the resurrection and Jesus is is the life. This is the whole story of Mark that we're working toward. The God who conquers death. Jesus is moving towards Calvary. And he will lay down his life to be crucified. It will not be a tragic end to a misunderstand life. It will be the fulfillment of God's mission to conquer sin and death and to accomplish eternal life for his people. Turn, <clears throat> turn with me to Mark chapter 16. I have a nice warm bottle of water here. Mark chapter 16, probably two or three pages to the right. It's on 853 of the Pew Bibles. The story, how it ends, the rest of the story. It says, in entering the tomb, the women, they saw a young man sitting on the right side. This is verse 5 and 6. Dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And they said to him, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Jesus' resurrection is the promise of our resurrection. Death could not hold Jesus, and it cannot hold anyone who puts their faith in Jesus. But how? I'll let the Heidelberg Catechism answer this question. How does Christ's resurrection, resurrection benefit us? Well, first, by his, res <clears throat> Excuse me. by his resurrection, he has overcome death. Why? So that he could make us share in the righteousness by which he had obtained for us by his death. We cannot stand before the Almighty God. All have sinned. But what does Jesus do? On the cross, he took our sin and our punishment. And in the resurrection, he rose to life and he gives us his righteousness so we can stand before Almighty God and be in communion with him for all eternity. Not only that, but it says second, by his power, we are too raised for new life. Like we told the children, just as God breathed life into the, the dust and gave Adam life, he breathes life into dead souls and raises them alive, causes them to be born again. And those that have received the breath of God in eternal life can never die. Though their body will be laid in the ground, in hope of the resurrection, we are confident because Christ rose, we will rise again. And thirdly, Christ's resurrection <clears throat> is to us a sure pledge of our glorious re resurrection. Death is not the end of the story for anyone who is uh, united to Christ by faith. There will be a day when as Jesus stood before Lazarus's 
uh, uh, tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. He will come and return and cry out with a trumpet sound, live. And the souls that we have buried in death will rise up at the resurrection with with glorified bodies, pure and holy, able to commune with God and dwell in the presence of our Lord forever. Ocean Park, God is the God of the living. And all who are united to Christ will never die, though they taste physical death. Do you believe this? This is the hope of the resurrection. In the 25 plus funerals I've done, I've preached, though we lay their body down, Christ will raise it up on the last day. Therefore, we grieve, but we don't grieve without hope. We grieve in the hope of the resurrection. But are you a Sadducee that's sitting here and you're rolling your eyes at the notion of life after death that's ridiculous? This is all we have. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Jesus says at the end of verse 27, you are quite wrong. You don't know what you're talking about. And he says, repent and believe. Repent of your cynicism, your pride, your misunderstanding of the scriptures and of God, and trust the life and the death and the resurrection of our Lord. Some of you are like the scribes who we'll see next week. You affirm the resurrection, but you believe it's up to your morality to get you there. Though you might do different things than the scribes did some 2,000 years ago, you think you have to do a whole laundry list of things to be able to make yourself worthy of heaven. And if you can at least outmaneuver your crazy uncle and that weirdo that you live next to, you got a good shot of making it to the big show. But the reality is there's nothing that we can do. And Jesus says, you have to be righteous. And notice in verse 34, you're not far from the kingdom, but you're not in the kingdom. And they knew they would fall desperately short. It's not what you have done. It's what Christ has done. And then finally, a genuine follower of Christ. You long for the presence of God when the shackles of this life of sin and death are released and you're glorified, and you are able to commune with God and know God, enjoy the blessings of a new heaven and a new earth, which is um, similar and very uh, to this world, but so much better because God is there, and you dwell in the presence of Christ. Ocean Park, our faith in the resurrection does not derive from empirical data logical arguments, or physical evidence. Our faith is in the resurrection based on the character of God and his ability and power to give life to the dead. He will not leave us in the grave, but cause us to rise to a new, transformed resurrection life where we will be with God forever. Because the living God who created life will resurrect his people to eternal life. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you. Though it is hot, and though the world is turned upside down and politically and health and economically, there's fear in our hearts and doubt in our minds. 
We cling to the truth of the gospel. We cling to the resurrection that is to come. And we love you and we trust you. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray. Amen.